And so one of the reasons there have been problems finding genes for some of this is we're trying to find genes for something that doesn't really exist in that sense of the word. It's not like finding genes for a biochemically or a pathologically defined condition. And yet we're trying to use genetics to help us identify more meaningful categories. So there's a slightly sort of um, iterative or vicious cycle approach, if you like, to getting between genotypes. So that's a, a kind of a, a bit of caveat. Having said all that, it's perhaps surprising that for all the limitations of our current categories, they are remarkably heritable. So whatever schizophrenia is, it is largely in our genomes. So estimates of heritability from twin studies, a classic way of working out how genetic is something, show figures about 80% with fairly tight confidence intervals. So beyond any reasonable doubt, schizophrenia is in our, more in our genes than it is in our environment. If you do population studies, big uh, whole study population studies, you get slightly lower figures, but still very significant. So there must be genes. Okay, that's, that's the point of this slide. Just as an aside, the bit that isn't genetic and then be partitioned environments into individual, specific, and shared environments. And in, in contrast to what a lot of psychiatrists would have thought, more of the environmental bit of schizophrenia is individual specific. So it's environmental factors that make children in a family different from each other, rather than shared environments, which are factors that tend to make kids and families the same as each other. And if you remember some of the older psychological and psychodynamic theories of schizophrenia. It was all about how your family brought you up and kind of made you schizophrenic. And that really isn't true from uh, genetic data. Uh, and as I've said, I, the same figures really apply to bipolar disorder. If anything, bipolar disorder is even more heritable than schizophrenia. So, so it's very heritable. They're not uncommon conditions. There's been lots of research. So why has it been so difficult to really make progress? And even where there has been progress, it's got very... Controversial. I've been, I've been in many a symposium like this. Um, largely because, of course, the person who discovers the gene of the schizophrenia works such a thing. This is big territory. This is Nobel Prize territory. So there's some big egos out there uh, who like to um, strut their stuff at conferences. Um, and then you get some slightly more cynical views about perseveration, not perse perseverance, and psychiatric genetics <laughs> the dark at the end of the tunnel. I won't tell you which famous neurologist made those comments, but suffice to say he's down the end 40 in UCR. Right. <laughs> anyway, I think increasingly that degree of scepticism just isn't compatible with the data. We really do have some low science and genes now for the psychiatric conditions. Okay. So, just again before I come on, why has it been so hard and what can we rule out? Well, as I suggested a moment ago, part of the problem is we know we're starting with the wrong thing. We're looking for genes for something that's as, as difficult or as imperfect as if you in neurology were trying to find genes for dementia without having pathology or finding genes for epilepsy without understanding about different forms of that condition. Then it's partly that it's just the way it's turned out to be. Schizophrenia is not a condition with a Mendelian subtype, let alone the Mendelian architecture. So you don't have informative families where you can do classic genetic studies to identify those genes. Instead what you have is a whole range of genes and types of genetic variation which I'll come back to in a moment. Two other factors which I think are really important, but which I'm not going to speak to uh, again this afternoon. One is epistasis, the idea that there are gene-gene interactions. I think there's now really good evidence that they're going to be very important in complex phenotypes like psychiatric disorders. And the current methods and ways of doing science just don't really allow you to capture epistasis, but I think it's, it's a very important and neglected uh, source of some of the genetic, perhaps much of the genetic basis of these conditions. And then finally, gene-environment interactions, although one classically partitions variants into genes and environment, there's again increasing evidence that many of the genes with schizophrenia are working by setting off threshold <coughs> environmental factors. 
So whether it's genes interacting with birth complications, genes, genes interacting with what cannabis does to your brain, those kind of gene environment interactions, again, are difficult to study, but I think will turn out to be important. But because of where the data are, I'm going to talk, really, <coughs> talk purely about the genetic factors, individual genes in isolation. In terms of a timeline of when did things begin to pick up for schizophrenia genetics, or psychiatric genetics in general, in fact, it was really only in the early 2000s that the first genes of, of any robustness began to be identified. Okay? And the first sort of decade of the century, again, were still largely candidate gene-driven studies with all the limitations they have. But they did allow some, uh, a couple of meta-analyses which showed that even the candidate gene studies <coughs> did come up with some variations that met reasonable levels of statistical evidence. However, the really robust findings came when GWAS, when genome-wide association studies, technologies of that kind were applied to this field. And the first of those came out in 2008, with what at the time was an extraordinarily large sample of 3,500 people. And that came up with one hit, which I'm going to come back to later, and then as the years have gone by and the technologies got better and the sample size got bigger, you culminate in the Nature paper I'll show you in a moment from a couple of years ago, where you're up to almost 150,000 people and you've got a commensurately larger number of risk of so, before I come on to what we think is going, what can we rule out? Uh, there are no causal genes. There is no gene for schizophrenia in the, sense, in the sense that there's a gene for Huntington's or a gene for Wilson's disease. And there isn't even, as I said earlier, there, isn't even a, there aren't even Mendelian families, rare forms of the illness which clearly segregate, which in, in elsewhere in neuropsychiatry, of course, are very informative in understanding pathological pathways. We know that schizophrenia is not a collection of different single gene disorders. And then finally, coming back to this point about there being no boundaries, cross-disorder GWARs show clearly that the majority of the genetic risk for schizophrenia is shared with that for bipolar disorder, and also for autism, and depression, and learning disability. Okay? And indeed, one of the controversies at the moment is what, where are the points of rarity? What does make it bipolar disorder in one person and, and schizophrenia in another, when so much more of the genes in those conditions are shared than are different? Right. <coughs> So what the data show is there are three sorts of different, different sorts of genetic variation which underlie schizophrenia. The majority of the heritability come from SNPs, common variants uh, with trivial effect sizes, but which cumulatively explain probably, probably 70 to 80% of the genetic risk for schizophrenia. The rest mostly comes from copy number variants or structural variants, these kind of miniature regions of chromosomal deletions or duplications, and I'll show you those data in a second. And then finally, rare variants, indels, and other small sort of <coughs> trinucleotide variants, which haven't really been well characterized, but which probably account for a small uh, remaining amount of genetic variants. So schizophrenia is mostly about SNPs, and it's, the rest of it is mostly about CMPs. And I'll just run through, you, through the evidence for both those sorts of genetic variation. And this is the, this is the Nature paper from a couple of years ago, with the Manhattan plot. <coughs> Many of you aren't aware of these kind of papers here. The chromosome shown on the x-axis from 1 through to the x-chromosome. And the y-axis is probability. And the higher you are up the y-axis, the more certain it is that that point in the genome shows statistical association to schizophrenia. And there's 108 points at which these loci exceed the P of 10 to the minus 8 threshold. And some of these peaks, including one I'll come back to in a moment, are really so far above the threshold. There's no question but that there is some statistical relationship with schizophrenia. And for those of you who aren't uh, sort of GWAS people, just a few caveats about what you can and can't conclude from a study that in some ways looks really impressive. And sometimes people think, <coughs> that means we've got 108 genes for schizophrenia. It doesn't mean that at all. 
It means there are 108 loci, so regions of the genome that show association. And underneath those locus peaks are at least 600 protein coding genes and many others, many non-protein coding genes. Some of the genes people guess what they might be under that locus, and I'll show you some data in a second, but in many cases it's not clear what the association of the locus is telling us. Remember that SNPs aren't causal variants, they're just things of the way of tagging the genome. They're just telling you whereabouts in the genome is something going on. They don't tell you what's necessarily the gene or what's different about it, and that's really where the biology comes in. The individual SNPs have very small odds ratios. So to kind of an epidemiologist, these odds ratios are trivial. They're not interesting in themselves, but cumulatively, they explain a lot. Most of the SNPs are not coding, they're not changing amino acids in any known protein-coding genes, so why are they functional, what are they doing? <coughs> and even if you add up 108 loci, the best guess is they explain 5% of the heritability of schizophrenia. This question of what's the missing heritability uh, is one of the controversies, and that's perhaps where epistasis and gene-environment interactions, as well as other SNPs, may come in. And then finally, it's a very Caucasian-centric data set, so whether the same applies in other populations is very unclear. This is what an example of one of the locus peaks in the Nature paper shows you. So here are all the SNPs they've either measured or imputed, and anything above this green line again is significant. And underneath here are the known genes in that region. And you can see that this area of association spans lots of genes. You have no idea what the biological implications is, therefore, of this association. And indeed, how would you go about even deciding what kind of biological experiments you're going to do to work out which gene is affected and what's different in people with the risk form of the gene versus the non-risk form. Some of the, some of the peaks are slightly more informative. So this one, uh, is it, this here, the locus peak, is entirely within a specific gene, the teletrophic glutamate receptor 3 gene. So some of these peaks lend themselves more readily to doing some biology, biology because you'd have to be very perverse not to think that this is telling you something about this gene. It doesn't have to be almost certainly. So those are the SNPs, then just very briefly before I come on to the empirical data, the bit that's not SNPs is mostly about copy number variants, and there's now about a dozen CNVs in different parts of the, of the genome, duplications and deletions, which are very rare, but when present, confer significant odds ratios of schizophrenia. So the average odds ratio with each of these SNPs, as you can see, varies from about 2, 8, 57, so quite big ones. So in the small patients who have one of these CNVs, they're really quite important. But, for example, the 3Q29, you see it in 14 out of 17,000 patients versus 1 out of 70,000 controls. So an individual clinician was never going to ever get to see one of these cases. Um, so you have this paradox that the SNPs are very common, but they're kind of trivial, whereas CMVs are very rare. If you found one, you'd be very excited in it. And as an aside, the question is, have we got to the point where we should be CMV testing all patients presenting with schizophrenia? Okay, let, let, I, I'm not going to talk more about the biology of CMV, so I'll, I'll move on to come back to some implications of the SNPs. So, we have these 108 loci, there are also some candidate genes. What is that telling us about the biology of the condition? What can we do to go from that massive data to trying to begin to make sense of what it means and how, how you might do experiments to investigate it? Well, the first is it's quite reassuring that actually if you look at all the SNPs and all the CMVs, it's really out beyond any doubt that they converge onto a number of pathways. And the four that I think are all robust for different reasons and have different implications are shown on the slide. The first is NMDA receptor signaling, and related to that, synaptic plasticity. So gene families involved in those functions, which of course are really core 
to brain development and plasticity turn out to be important in the development of schizophrenia. Calcium signaling is one that was perhaps less expected in schizophrenia, but again, calcium genes, particularly L-type calcium channels, come out quite robustly. And then finally, immune function. I'll come back to that at the end. So that's one point. There are, there are functional gene families overrepresented clearly in schizophrenia genetics. And the second point, coming back to the SNP bit in particular, as I've said, they're non-coding. And there's two principles I think we now are fairly sure about, which I'll show you the data for now. The first is what they're doing is that they're affecting gene regulation. They're affecting either expression or splicing of one or more products of the gene at one or more times in life. And that it's particularly more than chance. It's isoforms of genes that are enriched in the brain as opposed to isoforms of the same gene that are expressed elsewhere. It's more often in fetal life than in adult life. And for a number of the genes, they're isoforms that are human-specific. So they're isoforms of genes that you don't find in rodents. In particular, that, of course, has implications against the kind of experiments you may do. So just firstly, to summarize an example, when I say NMDA receptor signaling is involved in schizophrenia, what do I mean? I mean, first of all, observations that people made about 10 years ago now, embarrassingly simple observations, just noted that the genes that were being reported all seem, or many of them seem to have something to do with glutamate receptors. Okay? And could that be more than chance? Now, at the time, the evidence was really poor, and I'm embarrassed to publish this paper, but it actually turned out to kind of be right. Because as the, as the genetic data got better, there's now evidence from these, both the CMV studies and the SNP studies and some of the sequencing studies that really do show this overrepresentation of NMDA receptor-related genes. And the reason that's been reassuring, I think, for the field, for psychiatry, is that this was exactly the main pathophysiological hypothesis of schizophrenia that was around before the genes were discovered. So many of you will know that dopamine is often been thought of as center stage in schizophrenia. <coughs> but by about 2000, everyone thought that dopamine problems were downstream of a primary glutamate disturbance, again, for reasons I won't go into. And that was in the absence of any genetic information whatsoever. And yet along come the genetics <coughs> and really independently supports that view of the illness. So the evidence that we had previously was pharmacological, so evidence from using NMDA receptor antagonists and agonists, coagonists, biochemical data from imaging and from post-mortem studies of patients with the illness, from animal models where you knock in or knock out various glutamatergic genes or you give glutamatergic drugs, and then more recently, through the work of Angela, Vincent and people, the suggestion that anti-NMDA receptor antibodies might again be another specific contributory cause to schizophrenia. So a nice convergent piece of, uh, convergent set of evidence really, which the genetics has very much supported a pre-existing hypothesis. So that's, that's an example of setting the scene. I want to now to say to drill down into two particular genes that we've worked on that really just illustrate the approach, the, the questions, the concepts, and the difficulties you have when you go from this fairly high-level stuff, a lot of hand-waving, a lot of principles, to actually what's the data that support these kinds of assumptions and interpretations. I want to start with one that's um, a gene called moregulin and its pathway, and secondly, a gene called ZF beta 4 so norregulin, and I know some of you in this room are real experts on this pathway, but for those of you who aren't, norregulin is an, an epidermal growth factor. It's a growth factor molecule which, long before it had anything to do with schizophrenia, was a gene and a protein that had been studied by all sorts of biologists. It has all sorts of roles in embryology, in the nervous system, and outside the nervous system. Synaptogenesis, NMDA receptors, glutamate signaling. It was a really pleiotropic and interesting molecule. And then it turns out to probably have something to do with the genesis of schizophrenia. 
So norregin is a ligand which signals via uh, specific receptors, particularly ERB4 receptor, and then uh, into two main intracellular pathways, which I'll show you later. And important for our discussion, at this point it's expressed as multiple distinct isoforms. So it's a very big, very complicated gene, which has a whole range of both mRNA and protein isoforms, which do different things, they're in different places, they signal differently, and so on. The much of the variation comes from these so-called types of norigin, types one to six, which are all defined by their five prime exon. Okay? So just remember that there are six types of norigin defined by the five prime exon, and they all therefore lie at different places in the gene. So I'm sorry, this is a complicated <coughs> slide, but here's the, here's the norigin one gene for five prime to three prime, and the red Roman numerals are where the, iso, where the exon is that encodes the defining exon for that type. And you can see there are no particular order four, two, five, one, three, and six going from one end of the gene to the other. Now underneath that are plotted where the main areas of association of that gene to schizophrenia have been reported. And you can see that they're kind of all over the place, but the majority of reported <coughs> genetic associations to the illness come in this region of the gene. Okay? And this region of the gene is the bit that encodes the exons that define types 4 and type 2. So one possibility is that maybe this genetic signal that's in this part of the gene is therefore impacting particularly on these isoforms of the gene, not these isoforms further down. Because these SNPs aren't coding, they're not changing the norregulin amino acid sequence. They must, if they're doing anything, be affecting the regulation of the gene. And it seems more likely they would affect these isoforms than they would isoforms that are physically further away. So the first study that, that we did was a very simple study, a qPCR study, where we amplified out all these types of norregulin in a large series of postmortem human brains to say, not to say what's the effect of diagnosis of schizophrenia, but what's the effect of the main risk polymorphism on expression of these subtypes of norregulin? And the main SNP at the time, this, this RS number here, is right at the beginning, right at upstream of exon, uh, uh, sorry, type 4 norregulin. And sure enough, the data show that this, uh, this SNP affects expression of type 4 norregulin one, but no other isoforms. <coughs> so individuals who, individuals who have the risk form of this gene, that polymorphism, express more type 4 norregulin than heterozygotes or homozygotes for the non-risk <coughs> As if maybe one of the things this risk SNP is doing, and maybe one of the reasons it's got something to do with schizophrenia, is it means you're making more type 4 norregulin, whatever that might lead you to implications that might have. We also showed in, in the vitro assays that again if you get yeah, that allele is associated with greater expression. So that allele is probably affecting the transcription factor binding site in the promoter of type 4 norregulin. The other the other norregulin isoforms weren't affected by the SNP at all. And this suggestion of type 4 norregulin might be the type that's particularly important in schizophrenia led other people to go off and do various experiments looking at the biology of type 4 norregulin 1. And again, it has supported the view that there's particular roles in brain development, but that's not work I've had anything to do. Okay, so this was the first suggestion. I think perhaps the first risk SNP in schizophrenia or anyone had shown a kind of molecular correlate <coughs> of risk variation. And it again suggested that we might need to take isoforms into account when you're doing this kind of study. At the same time, other people looked at the functionality of this risk polymorphism in different ways to support the idea that this might be a functional SNP, or at least approximate functional variation. So, for example, the, the SNP affects chemotaxis, and one of the functions of norregulin is in chemotaxis and cell migration. It's a factor that predicts whether people at risk of the illness progress to the syndrome or they don't, and in a kind of fairly typical genetic imaging way, people took groups of subjects, stratified them by genotype, and said, 
what happens to their fMRI signal or their white matter integrity or whatever else. And again, this suggested functionality mechanism. So that was norregulin. Type 4 norregulin might be something to do with it. That might be the mechanism that's associated with schizophrenia. But norregulin, as I said at the beginning, is just a ligand. And it's, and it, it's, it's part of a really big and important biochemical pathways. And the two here on the left I'll point to are the relevant ones. So norregulin, via its binding to ERB4 receptors, is then coupled to two intracellular pathways. So the next thing that Tamanda Law did, he really did all of this work, which was in Oxford, from having studied norregulin, was to go to the receptor, was to go to ERB4 and say, okay, do we see any evidence that this genetic signal, or the biology, isn't just seen at the level of the ligand norregulin, but you can trace it to the receptor? And sure enough, it was the case. So it turns out that there are SNPs in the ERB2, sorry, ERB4, which are also risks for schizophrenia. So ERB4 is also the schizophrenia risk gene. And in ERB4, what those risk variants are doing, again, is affecting expression of one isoform of ERB4. So ERB4 isn't quite as complicated as an auriculin, but it has a particular variant called Site 1 and Site 2, which, are, which, which encode part of the cytoplasmic domain. And these risk SNPs for schizophrenia selectively increased the site 1 isoform, and that turns out to be quite important, okay? Because only the site 1 isoform couples to this pathway. Both ERB4 isoforms couple, sorry, the other ERB4 isoform couples to both pathways, but only the site 1 isoform couples to this pathway. So the suggestion was maybe this is the norregulin stimulated pathway that's important in schizophrenia, not the other one. Okay? And so then, Amanda did some experiments where we looked at the next level <coughs> of the pathway, PI3 kinase, which is one of the important PI kinase pathways, which regulates various other secondary uh, tertiary measures in the cells. And again, she found out that evidence that the genetic signal of B4 has effects on PI3 kinase expression and activity. So the B4 risk schizophrenia genotype not only predicted B4 site 1 expression, it predicted expression of an isoform of PI3 kinase and activity of that isoform and therefore generation of PIP3, which is the product of that enzyme. So now the genetic signal that began at norregulin has gone through ERB4, it's now gone down to PI3 kinase, the next member's pathway. And genetic variation in PI3KD, this isoform of PI3 kinase, was also found in genetic resistance. So now it's not just one isolated SNP in one gene, it's now three parts in the same biological pathway, all of which are showing functional involvement and genetic involvement in schizophrenia. And the, kind of the last piece in this paper was finding that because the net effect of all this on PI3 kinase was increased activity of one of the products called the P110 delta, I'm sorry I'm rushing through this, but the gist is the net effect of this genetic perturbation was to have overactivity of P100 delta. Coincidentally, P100 delta, sorry, P110 delta inhibitors were already available because they'd been tested for use in certain cancers. So Amanda took one of these P110 delta inhibitors, put it into rat models of schizophrenia, and lo and behold, they normalized these schizophrenia-like phenotypes that mice and rats can show in terms of PPI, amphetamine-induced activity, AKT phosphorylation. Okay. So potentially, and I do stress that, here's an example of where genetic studies and molecular studies have led to a completely unexpected potential therapeutic target or therapeutic approach to schizophrenia. Now, for various reasons, this hasn't really gone very much further since 2012, and that's as much got bogged down into the IP for this drug as it has the science, because initially when 
this was an orphan drug that the company had dropped, worked, didn't care about it. The minute there was a chance it might sound do schizophrenia, suddenly the IP issues have become very <laughs> considerable. So that's, again, a salutary lesson that science doesn't always lead you to the therapy. But anyway, I, I, do, I, I start with this example because I think it's, to me, my knowledge, and earlier perhaps still the, the best work through example of how you can take genetics iteratively with molecular biology and then behavioral studies to try and really use genetic information to understand about pathophysiology and about therapeutics. Can, can I just ask that? Yes, of Are there actually polymorphisms in each of those path, uh, members of the pathway? Uh, and do they add up genetically? Yes, so the ones with asterisks have yeah. all shown genetic association. Now, uh, an AKT, the next one downstream, shows association. <laughs> now, I'm not saying for a minute these are GWAS genes, and that's partly because this is an example of epistasis. So there's other evidence showing there's epistatic interactions between these genes. So it's really people who've got risk variant in two or three of those four who then have the real risk for the others. Okay, but, but they do add up. Yes, yes, so it's both biochemical and genetic interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's my first example. Okay, if there are specific questions about that story, I'm happy to take them before I move on. Okay. Second one's a bit simple. Well, you might yes. tell us what AKT does that MAPK doesn't in the cell. Oh, well, uh, that's a huge question. I'm not sure I can answer that. Um, in your answer. I, I don't think it's a cellular location of these. I think it's, it's again, it's the downstream effects of these pathways. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. What are the downstream? Well, these are both, I mean, these are both, these are both kinases. These are, these are phosphorylation reps. I can't remember the products of these different kinases. Interesting, though, AKT1 is where dopamine D2 receptors end up signaling through. So this is an example of point of convergence on dopamine signaling as well, but I can't answer it in a sophisticated way. Forecast a big feedback on glutamatergic signaling. Yes, so there's a paper in Nature Medicine early on in the story which shows that ERB4 regulates an MDA receptor signal. So if you like to link this to an MDA receptor function, this story does that very nicely as well. One of the challenges that you know with norregulin is it does so much stuff that almost any hypothesis you've got, there's data showing norregulin or ERB4. Do you think it's acting on synaptic function or myelination in the sense that PR3 kinase is a very strong regulator of myelin wrapping at the same time as on synaptic uh, the particular ice form of PI3 kinase that's affected is particularly strong in hippocampal neurons. Right. Now, that doesn't mean it's not myelination, I guess no, it's sure. something more synaptic than myelination. Yeah. So, the second example um, is then an FA4A, which is kind of the opposite of Norik. This is a gene about which nothing was known, and nobody cared about it at all in any area of biology, as far as I can tell, until it turns out to be the first genome wide associated. Uh, genome-wide associated schizophrenia. It's called it's called zinc finger protein A4A because its sequence looks like it might be a zinc finger binding protein, in other words, a transcription factor. But it doesn't even look very much like that in terms of the sequence. So I think the simplest thing is to say is when this association of schizophrenia was discovered, nobody knew anything about what the gene was, what it did, where it was expressed, and so on. Okay? So on this occasion, you're starting with genetics of really a blank piece of paper, and what do you do first? Again, rather like norregulin, the risk SNP associated with schizophrenia is not coding, it's an intron of the gene. Okay. So here's, here's a cartoon of the ZNF of 8 of 4 gene. It's, it's relatively simple. They only had four known exons, E1 to E4. And here's the risk SNP, sticking in the middle of that intron 2, just upstream of exon 3. And so our first hypothesis, based on a kind of the success of the norregulin work, is okay, maybe it's expressing it's affecting splicing of the gene in this region. But at the time, there were no splice products known. It was just the whole length of isoform. 
I'm going to come back to how we did that. The first thing, before we even did that study, is we also know was it even present in human brain, because that hadn't been demonstrated. The only thing we did know was that people again went into genetic imaging. The minute this SNP was associated with schizophrenia, people went back to their imaging studies, re-gene typed everybody for this SNP, and inevitably reported in, in science that there was a, a neural mechanism, a genome-wide support case of it. This was just secondary analysis of an existing fMRI versus fMRI, forget what they found. You've got me in science fairly easily these days. We've then done some, we're guilty of that subsequently as well. At least we had the, we at least published a negative paper. We found no effect whatsoever on brain structure and a very large sample of that 1,200 people. Uh, but we did find some interesting findings on MEG and fMRI, which I won't go into today. This is easy. The hard stuff is the molecular stuff, because if you don't have existing data, you kind of have to generate empirical data yourselves. So the first thing we, we want to say is, is the gene expressed in human brain at all? Uh, and uh, after quite a lot of work, we found that it was. So this is a gene that is expressed. And interestingly, it's expressed, and this is now proteins, of course, in the chemistry. It's expressed particularly in layer 3 and, and to a lesser extent in layer 5 pyramidal neurons, which in this region of the brain, which is the frontal cortex, that's exactly the population neuronal that people think is involved in schizophrenia. So these deep layer 3 pyramids are the cell population where there's the best morphological data, cellular morphological data, but they're either smaller or have slightly changed characteristics in schizophrenia control. So coincidence or not, here's the first gene in my schizophrenia gene, and it's abundant in that cell <coughs> So that's interesting. The fact it's in, in human brain at all is, of course, relevant. Next point, if you look at its distribution of the neurons, if it was just a transcription factor, what's it doing really throughout the cytoplasm? It's going up into the dendrites. <coughs> we think these granules are ribosomes. These are roughly R. So this is a gene whose protein is being trafficked. Subsequently, it turns out that a lot of these transcription factors also involved in RNA processing and RNA splicing. So we think this is first distributional evidence that this gene, whatever else it's doing, isn't just a transcription factor. And again, some other data has supported that. And then finally, we showed it's present in fetal brains and infant brains as well as in adult brains. So the protein is there, so that perhaps increases the chances this gene might be doing something relevant to schizophrenia. So then we went back to this question, what's the genetic variant doing? And using combination RNA sequencing and race and PCR, we found that there is indeed an alternative splice variant of this gene that hadn't been reported previously, and it's a variant that lacks exons 1 and 2. So it's a variant that only keeps an extended exon 3 and exon 4. It's still got most of the protein in it, because these exons don't actually encode very much protein sequence. So it's, it's not that much smaller, but it's a truncated transcript. And so it's that, the, the brains have a truncated transcript in them, human brains do. The question is, is the expression of this transcript versus that transcript affected differentially by the risk polymorphism? Because that's a hypothesis. Okay, and we therefore ask the question, does this risk vary, does this risk gene type affect expression? And indeed, is this isoform affected in people with schizophrenia? And to do this study, we're now working with our friends in the States, who've got six or seven hundred human brains, all genotyped with high quality RNA. Because once you want to ask genetic questions on expression, you've got to have huge sample sizes because you've got to generate enough groups of people with different genotypes. And what we found, first of all, we did a question about what's the lifetime expression of these forms of norregulin, and each spot here is a different subject. The right-hand panel, this is full-length book, Canonicals, mm -hmm. NNA-84A, which shows a fairly unremarkable lifelong expression, relatively similar levels from fetal age through to old age. Whereas this new variant that's only got exons E3 and E4, you can show it was at a, was at a significantly higher level of fetal than it is postnatally. And this is a log scale, so this is, this is not a trivial greater in expression than it is postnatal. 
So here's an isophore that might have more to do with brain development. But again, what's genotype and diagnosis doing to it? Here's the diagnostic data, not particularly interesting to me, but some people like to know what's going on with the disease. And here, this truncated isophore is expressed less in schizophrenia than in control subjects. But these are fairly minor differences. They're only statistically significant because we've got this ridiculously large sample size. Okay? The really interesting finding is this question, what's the risk genotype doing to expression of this novel isophore? And what we found was that in fetal brains, and only in fetal brains, the risk isoform predicts less expression of this truncated isoform. Okay? So the nine fetal brains, the fetuses that didn't carry the risk allele, because this is a common risk allele, had higher expression of this truncated ZNF isoform than did the other subjects. Now, I would normally be very cautious of this result because the sample size has now got very small, but actually it's an exact replication of a previous study in fetal human brains, which showed, again, this same genotype effective expression ZNF-824. What the previous study hadn't done was distinguish one isoform from the other. So this is sort of a clarification and confirmation of that. If you looked at all the, post, the hundreds of postnatal brains we had, SNP <coughs> no longer affected ZNF-824 expression. So whatever this SNP is doing, on expression ZNF, it's doing it before birth. As I mentioned earlier, that's actually a theme that's coming out of a number of these studies, that these risk, these risk genes for schizophrenia are doing much of their work during fetal brain development. Um, quite why they, you know, why they impact on risk and illness that doesn't begin for many years later, of course, is another question. So this is an example of work where, say, we had a gene which we didn't know anything about, and a variant that hadn't been reported previously, and all we've managed to do in the kind of three years we've been working on this is what I've shown you. Because it's not trivial work, characterizing these methods, getting all the brain material, the RNA. But on the other hand, it's scratching the surface. Because I can't still tell you why does it make any difference if you express a bit more or less of one isoform of a gene where we don't really understand what it's doing in the first place compared to another one. How would you go about testing this further? What's the relevant biological experiments to do to follow up on these observations? Okay. So, you have this challenge that the, the, the statistical genetics has come out with all these loci, all these genes, yet really following up those findings meaningfully is still kind of old-fashioned, low throughput difficult wet lab science. Uh, and uh, I think that, question, that problem can only get worse as the number of genetic things you'd like to look at gets bigger and bigger. You've got to kind of guess, predict where to put your money and your effort and your time, which gene and which kind of science to do. So those are the two examples of our own work that I just wanted to summarize to you. Let me just finish bringing things up to date um, about a third mechanism, a third process. And that's explaining the basis of the biggest linkage peak, uh, sorry, association peak in schizophrenia on chromosome 6, which is the NHC complex locus. And here the p-value is astronomical. But the mechanism for that, the explanation has always been very unclear because it's such a difficult region to understand genetically. Many of you have seen the paper in Nature last week or the week before, which has really made significant progress in unpicking the biological implications of the association of chromosome 6. And it really highlights particularly this gene, the complement component 4, C4. And it turns out that the genetic risk in that part of chromosome 6 is because you have some complex structural alleles. So these aren't, point, these aren't SNPs anymore. These are ways in which you're putting together different parts of the gene. And then depending on which of these structural variants of the C4 gene you have, you can see that your risk of schizophrenia goes up with these different variants, and that coincides almost perfectly with what they're doing to expression of C4. So people who've got 
the genetic form of C4 where you're making more of it are at greater risk of schizophrenia. So again, some kind of expression function link is going on there. The other, the other uh, question this paper helps answer is that it's not really about immunology probably. It's about the function that C4 related genes have in brain development. So it turns out that C4 is being expressed in synapses by neurons. And therefore, although we think about this as implying that schizophrenia has some immune function, it doesn't in the simplistic sense of the word. It's just a sign that you know, nature uses immune, immune molecules in brain development for essentially neurons brain development purposes rather than necessary for immunology. So quite how you tie this really nice paper in with all the other evidence that something might be awry with classic immunology in schizophrenia, I think is still a very difficult question to answer. I'm sure it does, but I'm not sure I know any clearer after this paper than I did before. So that, that's an example, not our work, and two examples around just to illustrate how you can try and understand how psychosis <coughs> genes are operating. So let me just summarize with a few knowns and unknowns. Perhaps the most important message is that we do now have loci and indeed genes of schizophrenia, and that's not something that people have been able to say before. It's trivial to those of you who work on diseases where you've always had genes and you take that as a given, but in psychiatry, sadly, that is, has never hitherto really been the case. The risk genes highlight that we don't have cure phenotypes in psychiatry. Our current diagnostic <coughs> categories really don't uh, reflect the genetic basis of those conditions at all. And indeed, the, the risk genes also overlap with other neurological and medical disorders, probably. The heritability is related mostly to thousands of polymorphisms interacting with each other in ways we don't really understand. And the rest of it is explained by copying up the variants. There are several key pathways functionally, of which NMDA receptor signaling, immune function, and calcium signaling are the three key ones. But again, no one really knows what's the net effect of this genetic variant on the function of those pathways. Simplistically, is there too much NMDA receptor signal? Not enough. Is it unstable? Is it affecting a particular cell or synaptic populations? So and until you know the direction and magnitude and nature of the involvement, you can't really use the genetic information very much for therapeutics because you don't know what, let alone which molecular target, you don't know what your new drug or antibody, whatever it might be, what's it trying to do to an NMDA receptor signal? We need much more clarity on the outcome of this genetic variation in terms of the overall functioning of the pathway. And as the examples I've shown you have illustrated, what the risk forms of these genes are doing, the risk alleles, is they're altering gene regulation. And that's particularly early in life, and it's particularly affecting specific isoforms of each gene. And again, as it will become apparent, it's quite a laborious process to know where to focus and what to prioritize. And lastly, the evidence is best at the level of transcripts, not of proteins. Now, most of us, I think, ultimately think about the function of genetics in terms of the proteins that the protein coding genes make. Yet at the moment, it's much easier to do this work with the transcripts than it is the proteins, partly because of the difficulties of getting good antibodies, for example, certain isoforms selecting antibodies. <coughs> but also, if the genetic signal, if what the genetics of psychosis is telling us is it's about gene regulation, then transcripts are the most proximal readout of that. The minute you go from transcripts to proteins, you're kind of moving further away from the genetics. <coughs> so you're introducing more noise and it's harder to see the signal. So again, knowing how long you go on just studying mRNA and transcripting ever more detail versus taking the plant and really trying to see how penetrant is this functional signal through to the level of proteins and then cells and the circuits that those gene products are working in. Again, is a, is a difficult experimental question to decide upon. And then finally, some known, some known unknowns. I'm sure there are many unknown unknowns. 
this missing heritage, I think, is, is, is the elephant in the room. People are getting very excited about these SNPs that are on their own and trivial. You know, the paper in Nature was fantastic and complex, but how much of schizophrenia can really be explained by variation in competency for a trivial amount, a fraction of 1%, I suspect, because the genetics are that's the limit of it. Unless it's an example of epistasis where C4 interacts with other genes and interacts with other aspects in brain development and maybe exposure to antigens, whatever it might be, and then suddenly C4 and that aspect genetics could be much more important in overall epidemiology of schizophrenia. We don't know very much at all about the relationships between genotype and phenotype in the classic clinical sense of the word. The price you pay for having 50,000 patients in a GWAS study is you know almost nothing about them other than the fact that the, the guy who sends the DNA and said they met criteria for schizophrenia. We don't know about age of onset, we don't know about subtypes of the illness, we don't know about outcome, we don't know about cognitive impairment. All the things that you'd want to know as a clinician to make more use of the genetic information we know remarkably little. Some of the hints are that we should be dividing up schizophrenia, that actually some of the genes I've talked about have more to do with one sort of schizophrenia than the other. On the other hand, there's at least so much evidence that says we should throw away diagnostic categories altogether. What these genes are doing is setting your abilities at working memory or at social interactions. They're just phenotypes which happen to be part of some diagnosis more than others. Okay? But I'm quite sure our current diagnostic parameters are wrong. I just don't know which way we should change them. I talked a little bit about how you can try and use genetics to identify the core pathways. Because this, in the ultimately, the, the psychosis aren't going to be about individual genes, they're going to be about molecular pathways and kind of pathophysiologically defined subtypes. And it's through that level of understanding that, of course, you hope the therapeutic potential of all this genetics and molecular cells is going to be realized. But again, I don't want to labor the point, I think we're a lot further from using genetics to really identify new targets and new drugs than sometimes we all. I equally like to assume that we all say in our next grant application or the final sentence of the Okay, so within these rooms, it's going to be tough, but you've got to do it. And psychiatry has no choice. That's what we need in psychiatry. We are desperate for science, okay? So it's this or nothing, which is why people like me are spending all our time doing this. But equally, you know, we have to be safe. So thanks for your attention. And just thank the people who've done the work that I showed you. Amanda Lord did almost all of the great work, and then a group of people in the lab who are working on ZNF 8408 and our collaborators in the States. Thank you very much.